0: The following audio is from Community Bible Church in Nashville, Tennessee. For more information about our church, please visit us online at cbcnashville.org. Father, you, you never promised us that we won't go through valleys of the shadow of death. And you never promised us that on this earth, while we are in this broken world and in this broken body that there won't be pain and trials but you have promised us that you will be with us. And as that song brought to mind and as the Psalms declare to us, we're safe with you. That regardless of what happens, that the one who can kill both the body and the soul is our friend, is our father, is a safe place. Lord, I I don't know what valleys people are in This morning, I don't know what difficulties people are dealing with in this room, but Lord, what I do know is that there's no valley deep enough and no struggle hard enough and no shame overwhelming enough that you won't enter in and give them peace and hope and be with them. Father, this morning as we look at your word, as we Consider the amazing realities of your redemption, of our salvation. Help our eyes to be fixed on you. Just be with us now. In your name, amen. I would encourage you to turn to John chapter 3, the gospel of John chapter 3. We're going to be continuing in our study this morning. We left Jesus and Nicodemus in the middle of a conversation. We ended quite abruptly, and full disclosure, we're going to end abruptly this morning as well, because we're not going to get all the way through. And in that conversation, we saw that Jesus informed us of the amazing realities of life in him. We saw last week, for the first time in the gospel, Jesus calls us to be born again. As we looked at an odd call, and as Nicodemus pointed out, how is that possible? That's an impossible action for individuals because, well, first, naturally, physically, a person can't be born twice. And second, how is it that we can receive this? As we saw last week, the only way that we can be born again is by God's direct action through water and spirit. But we had to stop abruptly, and we stopped right before Nicodemus asks a very important question. He really only asked one question, or rather two questions, in this episode here. The first one was a what question. What are you talking about? How does, what's going on here? What does that mean? The the concept of being born again was so far out of his purview as it relates to his theology and outlook on things that he goes, what are you talking about? And the second question, that his last question, really the last thing he's going to say in the Gospels is a how question. How can these things be? How can we be born again? But even before we read it, I want to uh, offer up a better way to even look at this how question. He says, if you're looking in the ESV like me, how can these things be? But the better way to interpret it is really in what way are you able to become this? The part of this story, the man that we are meeting is, here's these amazing realities of the gospel being born again. And he is leaning into Jesus saying, I want that. How can I get that? Again, last week, The words born again came up. We've never seen these words before. This new life concept was offered. That's a strange concept. Water and spirit are are said that they have to be poured out upon us in order for us to see and enter into the kingdom of heaven. He goes, how does that work? And the question that starts this section of the story is a how question. But I appreciate that Nicodemus asked this question. Because he was open enough, was willing to show his ignorance. So often in meetings and in in encounters, when one person is talking and we don't understand what they're saying or why they're saying it, we just sit there in silence hoping, please don't ask me to interject or to say something that at all uh, sounds reasonable. in This matter, I don't know what you're talking about. Here, Nicodemus, when he's hearing from Jesus, when he's hearing these concepts, he is willing to say, I don't know what you're talking about, but I want it. How and in what way am I able to become this? Now, Jesus' response to this question, this how question, is going to carry us through the rest of the episode all the way from verse 9 all the way down to 21. And it really can be broken up into two parts. It's first a rebuke and second Jesus unpacks. This rebuke is to Nicodemus because essentially what we're going to see this morning is that Jesus goes, hello, you are a leader, a ruler of the Jews. You should know this answer of how can I be saved? That's what we're going to see this morning. We're actually only going to look at verses 9 through 15. But the next week, we're going to see how Jesus unpacks the ramifications of the realities that we're going to see today of our life in Christ, how now that Christ has arrived, what that means for you and I. So, why is it a rebuke? Why can we title this section that we're going to be in 9 to to 15 a rebuke? It's simply this. Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, as a rabbi, as a reader and an exegete of Scripture, should have seen the gracious and merciful salvation of Jesus. The realities that Jesus is talking about should not have surprised him because what God had set out from the beginning of the world, from uh, in, in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, the gospel message that we have been hearing through all of Scripture has only continued. Jesus doesn't show up and then offer something new. Jesus shows up and fulfills what was happening in the Old Testament. So the first rebuke that we're going to see is, how have you missed it? That being said, I want to read our section for us this morning and we'll get into more of the details. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? How am I able to receive this salvation? Jesus answered him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But whoever believes in him, may have eternal life. As I said, I appreciate that Nicodemus had the guts to ask this question. How are you able to be born again? But the first thing that I want to acknowledge is actually Jesus' tone here. You can almost see Jesus being exasperated by Nicodemus. He's like, really, you? You have to ask me this question. You don't know the answer to this question. You can't answer the question, how can you be saved? You are a a ruler, a leader of the Jews. People have been following you. This should be question number one. How can I be saved? But the fact that Nicodemus has to ask it is, is the prime example of how far off him and the rest of the Pharisees had come in their pursuit of God. Just for a moment, I want to drill down on the gospel message that the Pharisees offered, because I fear that we can too easily slip into the same gospel message in our offering of the gospel. For centuries, the Pharisees had drilled down into the many details of God. They studied the Torah. They kept the traditions. They had been the best possible Jews they could have been. They had taken up the mantle of following all the laws to the best of their ability, and their devout faithfulness in their minds thought they was going to earn them sight and access into the kingdom of heaven. Just think back to last week. That's what Jesus is talking about. You have to be born again in order to see the kingdom of heaven. You have to be born of water and spirit in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In their minds, entering into the kingdom of heaven equates salvation, and they thought salvation equaled faithfulness. But when Nicodemus was presented with these truths that their devotion, that their faithfulness did not access, was not the access code for acceptance into heaven, he was left standing there dumbfounded. Well, then I don't know what to do. If that's not the answer, then I don't know where to turn because that's been the answer for all along. And look how Jesus responds to this. Verse 11, truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony? Jesus here has this really interesting response, because it's a plural response. We speak of what we know, and it's our testimony, but it's him. So who is he combining himself with? It's the prophets. Again, think back to last week. When Nicodemus approached Jesus, he was willing to acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet. And he was willing to acknowledge that Jesus was a prophet because Jesus had had been doing prophet-like things. At the Passover in Jerusalem, he had done many signs and wonders. And Nicodemus appropriately was saying the only people who do many signs and wonders are those people sent from God. And the people sent from God are the prophets. Now, we also pointed out that it was also pretty slanderous to call Jesus a a mere prophet because he wasn't a prophet. He was the prophet. He wasn't sent from God. He was God. But here, Jesus kind of takes up that mantle of being a prophet and goes, okay, I'll put myself into just the regular old prophet circle. We have been speaking of these things. We speak of what you do not know and bear witness to what we have seen. We have seen these things. I, this is the same message they had and yet you did not see them. I think a great way to understand this is looking at First Peter 1 verses 10 and 11. It says this, concerning this salvation, the same salvation that started and that was promised first in Genesis 3.15 and has continued all throughout concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. What Jesus is saying is we... The prophets of God have consistently borne witness to your question, how are we able to be born again? He's saying, we and my father have been revealing from the beginning, how in the world could you have missed this? That's been the one question that we've been writing about, that we've been answering. That's why the Torah existed. That's why the the Minor Prophets existed. That's why the Bible existed, to answer the question, how can we be saved? And you're now, after all of this time and study, you've missed it? You see, there are examples throughout the Old Testament describing how we can be born again. Real life examples, real life experiences in this world that demonstrate that are, that are shadows, that are illustrations of what our salvation looks like in Christ. We obviously, as we were going through the Exodus uh, last year and even beyond, it is a story of picturing how Christ redeems us. And God gave us those examples so that the invisible realities of our spiritual birth might become visible realities in our lives. He gave us those examples and had that all of that history in the Old Testament so that when we go, what does it look like for us to be saved? What are our living illustrations and examples of that? We can look at the Old Testament and go, those are the visible realities of what's happening invisibly in us. That's why we have the Old Testament. And Jesus is like, "Uh, uh, you've missed all of those stories? All of this is answering that question. But Jesus starts with this illustration of, okay, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And if I told you earthly things and you did not believe, if we have proclaimed to you Old Testament realities from the prophets that came true and you did not believe, if you can look at things with with your hands and hear hear stories from your past and know that they took place in time and space and you don't believe those realities, how in the world are you going to believe when I start speaking about supernatural things? How are you going to believe when I start thinking about future things? How are you going to believe when I start thinking about things when you're like, that doesn't compute? If you don't believe that, how are you going to believe this? Jesus, in his ministry, is going to share amazing realities about our coming glory. He's going to share prophecies that are going to happen in the future. And if we don't believe in him at the beginning, if we don't believe that his physical actions were true and genuine, how in the world can we believe that what he prophesied to come is actually going to happen? That's really what Jesus is talking about. Nicodemus, if you've missed this stuff in the past, how in the world are you going to get the stuff that's in me? But this just goes to show that God knows that we need illustrations for us to latch on to so that we can trust in his faithfulness. This is just a personal point before going any further, but God is always instructing us to look back at his past faithfulness to give us confidence in the future, in the story of redemption in the, in the Old Testament, we are constantly seeing the nation of Israel as they're wandering around both in the wilderness and coming out and going into Canaan. Jesus is constantly saying, build a pile of stones there and build a memorial there and build a well there. And all of these signs that are scattered around and it's for this purpose. So that when your kids see that random pile of stones over there, and you go, hey mom and dad, why is that pile of stones there? You might be able to recount to them God's faithfulness. And if God was faithful in the past, he will definitely be faithful in the future. You see, our assurance is, God is our assurance, in God is built upon the security he has proved by his past faithfulness. Amy and I have often said that the most beneficial part of our seminary experience was not the education. The education was important, and obviously having that piece of paper is, is necessary. But I think what we learned the most in that three and a half years of my training, going off to California and doing that, was not the education. It was our trust in the Lord. It was having those months and those weeks, not knowing how we're going to pay the bills, because we have two young kids in the house. I'm trying to work full time. I'm trying to go to school full time. The money's not matching up. It's Southern California, so it's a little expensive. How are, we, how are we going to survive? And a check comes in the mail for the exact amount. It was walking through a time of sickness, not knowing how it's going to end and then seeing at the end, God provided. It's going through a time when everything seems ups- upside down and I just want to throw in the towel. We just want to throw in the towel. We just go, God, I'm over it. I'm at the end of my rope. I cannot do it. Any longer and getting to the end of the hectic week, month, season, looking back to see God's hand of provision on us. It was walking through one valley of the shadow of death and seeing that God was with us, so that the next valley, an even deeper valley, an even darker valley, when it came up, we could trust that He would be with us there also. This is why, if you were with us for our congregational meeting this morning, an an element, I think the most important element, was looking back at the past year and the Lord's faithfulness, why it's so important. Because we learn to trust in him when we realize that he protected us in the past and he will protect us in the future. Jesus is going to say to us in the gospels and in his life, are crazy this side of heaven. They defy all human logic and reason. They go against our natural bent. They seem foolish for us to believe in. And what steps in to assure us that these truths are trustworthy isn't a greater level of human reason. But it's a trust that he was faithful in the past and he'll be faithful to us in the future. Now, even before we jump down and we look at this Old Testament illustration that he gives in verse 14, I want to take a side trip. I want to go back to looking at the Pharisees, and I want to, I want to look at the, 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 the question of how did Nicodemus and the Pharisees miss it by so far? And I want to zoom out on this for a moment because I think the same mistake that they made and that he made, we can make, and I don't want us to make it. Remember that I said that each of these personal conversations that Jesus had with all these different people that we're going to look at, Nicodemus is the first, we're going to look at the Samaritan woman in a couple of months, we're going to look at the blind man, we're going to look at the adulterous woman. Each of these episodes that Jesus has is really speaking to the heart of an individual and and hits at a different level. Well, Nicodemus is for the churchgoer. It's for that person who has done everything right in their life, and maybe it's just me, I feel like that's totally for, like, us in Nashville, in Bible Belt, and good and moral people, people who have, who have tried to maintain all of the regulations. And so when somebody goes, oh, are you a good person? Yes, of course, because I'm a good person. Well, I think this episode is for us as churchgoers. And we can all assume some things about Nicodemus. We can assume that he knew his Bible really well. We can assume that he knew the biblical traditions really well. I mean, he was a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he was a self-ascribed expert in the things of God. I am so glad that Google exists today because when I'm thinking of a Bible verse or a concept, something like that, it's very easy. And hey, there's no shame in this. Go, what is that verse? Google it. It comes up. But imagine he is the human Google version for religion, Hey, Nicodemus, where does it say this in the Torah? Well, he would know these things. He was the expert in the things of God. He had, I'm sure he had memorized so many Bible verses. He had upheld all of the godly practices. He was a shining example of what the follower of Yahweh should be. But in all of these spiritual disciplines, he had missed the point of the Bible altogether. He had been approaching the Bible looking for the wrong thing. All of his life, Nicodemus was looking at Scripture to answer one question. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to see and to enter into the kingdom of heaven? But that's the wrong question to ask. Because the Bible was not given to us so that we know what to do. Because we can never do enough. The Bible was given to us so that we might know what to believe. You see, the Bible is not given to us to make us better people. It was given to us so that we might believe in the better person. Because if you're applying Scripture to your life to make yourself a better person so that God will accept you, that's a never-ending pursuit that will never, you will never be satisfied in because you can never be good enough. But the Bible wasn't given to us to make us better people. It was given to us so that we might believe in the better person. And Nicodemus and the Pharisees are the prime example of what happens when you lose sight of that reality. We turn a story about belief into a story about work. Instead of looking for ways to trust, we look at things to do. And we turn, into, we turn our lives into Pharisees. I made this list. I'm going to preface it here. I want to somewhat offend you in, in Christ, in love. I want to offend you. I'm offended by this list. I sat down and I made a list of all the things that we tell ourselves that make ourselves good Christians. All the things that culturally speaking we carry with us. That in order to be honored by God, in order to enter into heaven, in order to be that good Christian, that good religious person, this is what we must do. So if I offend you, kind of the point, I'm offended as well. The Pharisees were great people. They were pious and disciplined and moral and hardworking and they were honest people. They would win all the contests at being the best Christians. They aced their Bible reading plans annually. They completed their prayer journals. They stood on street corners and they would call people to repentance every Saturday morning. They would tithe regularly. They never used credit cards or get vaccinated. They read 40 books a year. They went on mission trips. They boycotted all of the right companies that you need to boycott. They combated all the wrong opinions on social media constantly. They never swore, never drank, never chewed, and definitely didn't go with any girls who do. And judging, they were the epitome of what we want our children to grow up to be. I think that's the hardest thing. As parents, they were the epitome of what we wanted our children to grow up to be. Judging them by the church's standards, they say they had won. But here's what they did. They turned good things. That's a good list of things. They turned good things into damning things because they approached the good things and they judged the good things the wrong way. Jesus doesn't care about what you do. You know why? Because you can never do enough for your salvation. I mean, in Christ with the Holy Spirit in your life, yes, there's that caveat. But he's not looking at you to save yourself because you can't. Because even if you are the best person you know judged by God, because he is the standard, we are dirty, rotten sinners, full stop. What he cares about is what you believe in. So they turn the purpose of the Bible into a handbook of what we must do instead of a story about what we must believe. So here's my question for you this morning. When you approach Scripture, are you approaching it in the right way? Are you reading it to try to figure out what you must do so that you can be honoring to God or so that God could be pleased with you? Or are you reading it so that you know what to believe And who you should believe in. Because it's very easy to turn into modern day Pharisees. It's very easy to approach scripture and miss it by as far as Nicodemus missed it. To sit back and ask the question, how can I be saved? Because I've been doing all the stuff. I mean, Nicodemus is a little bit of a precursor to the rich young ruler. And instead of Jesus giving him the law, which is, he does with the rich young ruler, we'll go do all of those things, go fulfill all of those commandments. He turns around and says, you've missed it. The Bible has never been about doing. It's been about believing and trusting. You can turn to, to Numbers 21. That's where we're going to go. That's where this story comes from. But I want to first stop and just say, Jesus could have gone anywhere because the message of believe... And trust has been there from the beginning. Adam and Eve, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, Proto-Evangelion. What is it? Trust me that I'm going to send somebody who's going to crush the head of Satan. That's the first gospel message. Believe. Noah, trust me that I'm going to protect you. Abraham, trust me that I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Joseph, trust me that I'm in charge of your life. Moses, trust me that I will rescue the nation of Israel from Egypt. Joshua, trust me that I will be your commander. You have to follow me. David, trust me that your throne will be forever. Isaiah, trust me. Ezekiel, trust me. Jonah, trust me. I think you get the picture. It's all been about trust. Here's a picture that is the perfect picture of Jesus and the answer to this question, how might we be saved? And it's in Numbers 21. I want to fill in the context just before we jump into it. The people had been journeying in the wilderness for 40 years. Think back, they were saved from Egypt from ten plagues. God came in and miraculously saved them, not by the works of their hands. They were stuck in slavery. They were dead in sin. They couldn't do anything about it. Total picture of the gospel. God saved them, brought them out, uh, brought them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness, and they've been wandering around. Why have they been wandering around? Because the first time they came close to Canaan, they sent in 12 spies. The people that saw God do amazing things in Egypt... Split, red, split the Red Sea, bring water from a rock, food down from heaven. Saw the, the, the mountain at Sinai quake, went close to Canaan, and they walked into Canaan, and what they saw in Canaan was, it's a beautiful place. It's got grapes the size of cars. I mean, not really cars. Two people had to carry back these bushel of grapes. But it's also got some giants. I don't think we're going to make it. They went to Canaan after seeing all of God's faithfulness, and they were like, nope, he's not big enough to handle that which is ridiculous. And so what did they say? What did God say? Okay, because you did not trust in me, you are going to wander the wilderness for 40 years for this one specific point because none of you who came out of Egypt are going to go into the land of Cana. You are all going to die. And so it has been, they've been in a 40-year holding pattern as one generation dies off and another generation is raised up. And then they came close again to the land of Canaan. They're just about to enter into it. From a chronology standpoint, they are months away from crossing the Jordan River. This is a brand new people, if you will. It's Moses and Joshua are the only people alive that saw the things in Egypt. They had heard the stories, but they're the only people alive that saw the things in Egypt. And this is the people that, because they were born in the wilderness, all they've known all their life is the wandering. But we're going to see. Even though they weren't in Egypt, they definitely have the same sins as those people in Egypt. Here's a story, it's gonna be uh, 21, four through nine. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, that everyone who is bitten may see it and live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This story is a picture of horror and glory. And there are a lot of great details in it. We're not going to get into all of them, but I want to highlight some things. First, the people did not learn their lesson. They have been saying this same thing. It was better for us back in Egypt days after crossing the Red Sea. I mean, it was, they just cannot get in their head that they were in slavery in Egypt. And a big, po- a big part of this, I pointed out, this is a new nation. None of these individuals had been in Egypt. They hadn't gone through the terror of the slavery, but what they remembered, or rather they remembered more of Egypt's glories than of God's faithfulness. They got to see God's faithfulness every single morning. But what they remembered was the glories of Egypt where they were in slavery. The other thing I want to point out, these people are acting like hangry teenagers. Some of you laughed at the reading of it because I think you got it. Listen to what they say. We have no food or no water. There's nothing in the fridge to eat. Oh, well, there's nothing that I like in the fridge to eat because the food and the water. Well, we loathe this worthless food. We have no food, but there's food. It's like... Okay, kid, go eat what's in the fridge. Yeah, go make yourself a sandwich. What is this food? They can't say they have no food because from the moment that the manna started falling from heaven, every single morning they woke up to the Lord's new mercies laying on the ground. Is all they had to go do was collect it. And if they worried, is this manna going to dry up? It's not. So when they say we loathe this worthless food, what they're saying is we loathe the Lord's faithfulness in our life. We loathe his grace in our life. We would rather be in slavery than to eat this food. But that food itself was a daily reminder that God's blessings are new every morning. Third thing, the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he disciplines Israel. And he's been disciplining Israel. And he brings hard things into their life so that they might come, be led back to the point of realizing, we need to trust in the Lord. In this story, it's a very, uh, you know, simple jump. The fiery serpents came along the people and they bit them and the people died and many people died. And then he said the people came to Moses. That, I'm sure, is the cliff note version of this. Because if we know anything about humans and they were just real like humans, we are going to try every other remedy before we go to God, right? So I'm sure they were having concoctions of like, how can we protect ourselves from these snakes? And how can we try other remedies for these snakes? And how can we um, rid these snakes? How can we kill these snakes? How can we get out of this without going to God? And then they finally went to God. And why did they go to God? Because I'm sure they went, okay, we're dying here. If you don't do something, Lord, please Act. There's no way that we can get rid of these serpents. And the Lord provides salvation. And it's very simple salvation. Look at the serpent that was lifted up. I'm gonna dig down into this analogy a little more because it's remarkable. This is the best symbol that Jesus could have pointed to to describe himself. First thing, Serpent. I mean, we can't miss the fact that the serpent is symbolic of sin. The serpent brought sin into this world by deceiving Eve. So the this, so this sin is, in, is just filling the camp and has affected everyone, and you can't get out of it. You can't get around it. When you are bitten by the sin bug, you die, right? That's why we're always asking, what can we do to be saved? And all of us were bitten by the sin bug. And so the same creature that came to Eve in the garden is now inflicting Israel by every single fiery bite. And with this fiery bite, I mean, just think venomous snake. So these snakes are there and they, they go to the Lord and go, how, how, how can we be saved? And he, he says, well, lift it up. I mean, obviously it thinks about Christ lifting us up, even as it says back in John 3. So what about this serpent? Why was this serpent lifted up? Well, first, it wasn't an actual serpent that was lifted up. You might think that what Moses was commanded to do was go kill one of these serpents, the live ones, the actual snakes, and lift that up on a pole. But he wasn't called to lift up an actual serpent. He was called to lift up the symbol of a serpent, a serpent that was made in the likeness of, of a serpent, And look what this serpent was made out of. It was made out of bronze in the likeness of the animal. Well, I hope when you think of the metal bronze coming out of the Exodus, looking at the tabernacle, you're going to think of those elements that cleansed us. Because what was made of bronze in the tabernacle is the altar and the basin. Those things that we have to go to. Oh, the lights are going up and down today. We have to go to in order to be cleansed. Now, why is this the perfect picture of Christ? Well, just listen to a couple of verses in the New Testament and see if you can make the connection. This is Romans 8, 3 through 4. For God had done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our Lord became sin, or to put it in Numbers 21 terms, became a serpent for us to be lifted up. So that as Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He became that which he was not. He became that serpent who was lifted up. And how, how are we saved from that? Just look at him. Just look at him. It's that simple. The gaze of faith was all that we needed for life. The command to look at the serpent was a gracious and glorious foreshadowing of looking to Christ and for our salvation. It's very simple. Christ in him crucified. Look to him. There's, there's no details in that. There's no check marks. It's not, okay, Israel, go to the serpent and then what? I don't know. Do 10 of this and 12 of that and sit there for five minutes. No, it's look to the serpent. Can you imagine Trying to overcome this problem, being infested with serpents and dying, and then you hearing that your salvation is by simply looking. Then I'm I'm not. It's not an. It's not some you know special look. It's looking. Here's what one commentator said about this. No matter how horrible they were bitten, no matter how many times they had been bitten, no matter how sick they were, the opportunity for salvation was there. Even the most degraded and miserable person who looks to Christ will be saved. That is why our Lord uses this wonderful illustration. It doesn't matter the extent of your bites. It doesn't matter the pain that is going on in your life. It doesn't matter what you carry to that cross. If you look to Jesus, he will save you. So, going back to John 3, the question that started this morning, how can these things be? How are we able to be saved? Look to Christ. It's that simple. Trust in him. Trust that what is required of you is accomplished in him. Trust that while your life is going in shambles because we're in sin, we can look to him and know that he was the better person. He lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He was the the satisfactory sacrifice for us, and we can look to him and say, all that is needed is found in him. Nicodemus and the Pharisees, and I'm sorry, but far too many of us are trying to accomplish all that is needed by spinning our wheels with all of this other stuff. And Jesus comes in and goes, what are you doing? You can't get there. At some point, you're going to get to the end of your rope, just like Israel got to the end of theirs with these serpents, and you're going to say, Help, Lord, I can't do it. And the answer that you will receive is I know, because I did it perfectly. As we transition to communion, it is an opportunity for us once again to look to the finished work of Christ and to be reminded that that's where our salvation comes from. When we're we're looking at those things that save us, it's so easy for us to look elsewhere. When we're looking for those things that redeem us, that give us honor, that take our shame away, it's so easy for us to count other things. But the only thing that truly matters is Christ. You could sit here this morning and say, I am good with God. Not because of what you did this week. Not because of the thing you did three years ago. Not because of the thing that you haven't done. But because of what Christ did by living a perfect life and dying the necessary death and offering to us his salvation. If you haven't accepted Christ, this is a great morning to do that. If you're looking at everything else in your life, trying to satisfy yourself and justify yourself and save yourself, this is a great morning to lay all of that down and look to Christ. If you're here with us this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ, if you are looking at him we invite you to take communion with us. But, but if you're not, first, I'm so thankful you're here. But I would ask that you just let the, the cup and the plate pass you by because we don't want them to confuse you. We don't take these elements to save us. We take these elements so that we can be reminded of the salvation that we have in him. Let's pray and we can take these together. Father, thank you for your word and for your church and for your gospel. Lord, if there, are, if there are situations in people's lives this morning that they just need to be broken of, Lord, I pray that you would break them. Father, if, 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 if there's any individual in this room or listening that is going through one of those valley, the shadow of death moments where their life is being inflected by serpents and you are just trying to break them of their sin, Lord, help them see that you are a safe place that all of us who are weary and heavy laden can come to you. And you don't give us more work, but you give us rest. Father, thank you that we can glory in that gospel message. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation from Community Bible Church. For more information, please visit us at 6005 Edmondson Pike in Nashville, Tennessee or online at cbcnashville.org.